Hi everyone, Donna Cleveland here, host of Thread the Needle. While this is usually a monthly podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives, today I'm bringing you an extra bonus episode. I wanted to revisit episode two, which centered around the suicide of a 14-year-old trans boy named Finn in my hometown of Fairfield, Iowa. In the episode, I answer commonly asked questions about kids and teens who are transgender. I explore whether gender is taught or if it's an innate part of a person's identity, and I discuss whether or not gender dysphoria in kids can be a phase. Since creating the episode, I've come to realize that many of these lines of thinking mask an underlying discomfort and negative bias toward people who are transgender. I've amended episode two to address these concerns. If you haven't listened to episode two yet, I recommend scrolling back to the episode titled, When Gender is a Matter of Life or Death. If you just want to listen to the update, start listening at 11 minutes in. For today's episode, I invited clinical social worker Dr. Damon Constantinidis to help shed any stigma surrounding gender diversity. Dr. Constantinidis works with trans teens and adults in the Philadelphia area and uses the gender affirmative model, which is being practiced by a growing number of gender clinics across the U.S. He also worked with Dr. Linda Hawkins, who's the founder of the Gender and Sexuality Development Clinic at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He joined a team with Dr. Hawkins to develop a postgraduate certificate training on affirmative therapy with the goal of establishing more consistent care for transgender youth. Here are highlights from our conversation. To start, I asked Dr. Constantinidis to define what the gender affirmative model is. The gender affirmative model is based essentially on the idea that there's nothing wrong with being trans, right? And so if we look at gender diversity and even like transsexualism, that has existed across time, like forever. You can find it like in ancient history um, and across cultures, right? Like it's not like some new phenomenon in 2020. There is access to different medical care now, but the experience is not new. And so um, gender diversity is a normal and natural, and I know those words are loaded, but I'm gonna use them, part of the human experience. There's nothing pathological about it. It's really regular. Um, And so um, if you're coming from a place of this is some people's experience, then you're coming from a gender affirming model. The gender affirmative model is based on some core tenets, and I'll have Dr. Constantinidis explain to you what they are. And the trans and gender nonconforming affirmative therapy model is coming from this place of affirming trans and gender nonconforming identities. It's providing counseling that is culturally relevant to the clients, like really being clear about where they're coming from and meeting them there and addressing the social inequities, the experience of marginalization. Like the reason why it's hard to be trans, and I'm doing air quotes, um, isn't because the internal experience is hard. It's because the external reactions are often toxic and that impacts how people feel about themselves. So a trans-affirmative model is going to be addressing that. It's going to be addressing how to support strengths and resiliency for trans and gender non-conforming folks. The other one that I think is important is that understanding that our clients are impacted by systemic oppression and to be providing uh, mental health care means also addressing those systemic barriers, which means 
to some people that means like being an activist. And of course that has lots of different meanings, but it means like addressing sexist or transphobic school policies for your students or looking at things from a systemic perspective. Like we can create like a safe space for a trans youth to be themselves But if they walk out into the world and people are like throwing rocks at them, they're not going to experience like wellness, right? Like when we're constantly experiencing oppression, we know research says, we know that that um, has a negative impact on mental health. At this point in my conversation with Dr. Constantinidis, I wondered about the fact that gender dysphoria is considered disorder listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, otherwise known as DSM. Wasn't that problematic based on the gender affirmative model? It's a tricky thing. Um, the th- in, in my work, I really want to meet folks where they are, and different trans people have different opinions about that. I think that the idea that gender dysphoria is currently like in the DSM and it is a diagnosis is totally intertwined with the way we do healthcare in our country, and that to access life-affirming um, medical care, you need to have a diagnosis. It would, it would be great if we could shift that whole culture and not, not need that. And that's not where we are right now. Dr. Constantinidis painted a picture for me of the effects that the lack of acceptance the trans community faces is having on people. As a reminder from episode two, there are 1.4 million transgender and gender nonconforming adults living in the U.S., according to the latest government data. A staggering 41% have reported attempting suicide at least once in their lifetime, according to research conducted by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the Williams Institute. Trans folks are really getting scapegoated in the current political climate and and are dying. People are dying. People are killing themselves because they don't feel like they belong here because they're getting really clear, direct messages that we don't want you here. We're not going to use the word transgender on any of our federal websites. We're, we're going to pretend like you don't exist. So hopefully you'll go away. We're going to make it too hard for you to be yourself so that you'll either just want to kill yourself or you'll just stay um, closeted and, and um, unsupported. And those um, systemic approaches in, in our policy um, and legal system are, are working. Like they, they kill people. They kill kids. I asked Dr. Constantinidis, what are the main things people can do to be allies to the trans community? I think we need to be addressing cissexism in our communities and in our world and then in, in mental health care. And cissexism is the idea that we assume that people are cisgender, which means we assume that their gender matches their biological sex until proven otherwise. And we think it's better. Not only do we think it's better, we think that if we are cisgender, that we get to tell other people about their gender and we can tell them how they should be. You know, for example, pass bathroom laws or tell you where you can or can't use the bathroom or when you should or shouldn't have access to um, gender affirming medical care. And I think this perspective that being trans is weird and not normal and being cisgender is normal is really what we need to shift to create a world where young trans and gender nonconforming people feel like they belong. I also really try to encourage um, people who are committed to being allies to educate themselves, to um, Google stuff instead of asking a trans person to educate them. And also like standing up, like 
the jokes about transsexuals aren't funny. And so when somebody like makes the joke, you can be the person that says, actually, like, that's not funny. I live in a rural area of Iowa, and I know that it's difficult for people here to find gender affirmative care. I wanted to ask Dr. Constantinidis if this was a usual experience or if in general, it's become easier to find quality care. Now there's more places, but like five years ago, 10 years ago, people came from hours and hours away to come to Philadelphia because there wasn't access to care. You mentioned, I think in your questions, the WPATH standards of care. And those standards of care um, are aligned with the trans affirming model. That's what surgeons use nationally. And there's an expectation for clinicians to use nationally. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're actually getting used or addressed in that way. Conversion therapy with kids is illegal in several states, but not most of them. And that is, I mean, that is painful and harmful. So when I'm working with folks who are trying to find trans-affirming care, I talk to them a lot about interviewing their providers. And this is like a privilege, right? Like some people don't have access to like multiple providers or people they can ask or interview or transportation to get three hours to a clinic. But for people who do, it's like, you know, like having a conversation, like tell me about your approach to providing transgender health care. Have you treated transgender patients before? Tell me about what kind of education you've gotten for working with transgender patients. And like asking those questions, I mean, I think it's often very difficult. You know, even when there's access to care, it doesn't mean that it's the care that you need or that you get to have choices like cisgender people do. At this point in our conversation, I wanted to find out from Dr. Constantinidis about this point of parents wondering if gender dysphoria is a phase in their kids. When I have parents ask me that question, my response is, is it bad? Like, if your kid being trans or, or being gender fluid or non-binary or exploring their gender identity, is it bad? It doesn't actually matter. Like, your kid just gets to, like, feel what's good and then stick with it. And whether it's a phase is kind of like besides the point. I mean, I can also answer that question and say, usually it's not a phase. It's like kind of a hard thing. Like, why would somebody do something so hard? At, you know, like, like if it didn't, if there wasn't like a deep need, right? Just because you don't understand the need doesn't mean there isn't a need. And just because a kid can't explain it. I mean, what other I mean, kids, there's lots of things kids can't explain that are happening to them. When someone's asking, is it a phase? What they're usually asking is, please, please, please don't let my kid be trans. And that's what I'm really curious about. What's happening for you right now that that is your reaction to your kid trusting you enough to tell you what's going on inside their head or what's going on in the connection between their head and their body? Like your kid is like coming to you and trusting you and like, what's up that that's your response? Sometimes it's like, oh my God, what does this mean? I just don't know. I'm overwhelmed. And cool, right? Like we can like work with that. We can like, there's like lots of people who've had that experience. Like you're not alone in that. There's like lots of resources, right? But if the response is like, oh, please don't let that be, you know, as a trans person, I'm like, really? Like, it's not so bad to be me, right? Like, like I don't, I don't feel bad about it. Um, and, you know, your kid is, am is amazing. Like I love meeting kids, you know, like, and like, how do we, let them be their whole amazing self? And how do we help you manage your transphobia or your cissexism or 
just your fear. I'm not saying that there's something wrong with you or bad if you have that fear or sadness or shame. But I do think that like, if you don't want your kid to feel shame, we have to help you not feel shamed. Because it doesn't have to be a problem. It doesn't mean that you are now part of you as a parent are part of a trans family or a queer family because you're going to do your best to support your kid. And that is their experience. And so this is going to affect all of you, but it doesn't have to be a problem. I mean, there wouldn't need to be affirming. There wouldn't need to be affirming therapy if people didn't treat it as a problem. I had a kid once in a, in a group I was running talking about like, what am I going to do when I grow up? He identified as a trans man. He was, I think, like 16 or 17. <laughs> he said something that felt really hurtful to me, but it was really helpful for me to under, like, he was like, I don't want to just be like you. I don't want to just have like a job where I just work with trans people. Like, that's the only thing I'm allowed to do. Like, that's the only thing that's available to me. And I was like, uh, okay. But, but really, truly, I understood what he meant. He actually once wanted to be like a some kind of scientist, a chemist, a biologist, I can't remember. But like, there was no models for that. He's like, who am I supposed to be? And so like, kids are aware. He was really aware that it felt like there wasn't a place for him to, you know, be a scientist. Like, having a trans identity because of transphobia prevents kids from accessing higher education, from getting jobs, from getting paid as much as other people for having steady employment, from having steady housing. Like all of those things are true. He's not wrong. I think he was thinking about like, if, if all I'm left with are the jobs where it's safe to be me, that doesn't feel fair. I want all of the jobs to be where it feels safe to be me. I don't want it to just be the LGBT jobs where I don't have to be afraid of getting fired. I want that to be everywhere. And I mean, he has a good point. In episode two, I cited a few studies that followed gender dysphoric children over time and found that the majority didn't end up being transgender as adults. However, there are some flaws that discredit these studies, which I point out in the amended version of episode two. Research on adolescence, on the other hand, found that the emergence of gender dysphoria around the time of puberty almost always resulted in the child being trans. I wanted to get Dr. Konstantinidis's take on the subject. What did he think of these studies, and what did he think about whether parents should socially transition their kids, even if their experience of gender may change in the future? There are lots of people who've written about the flaws in that study, in terms of it being a, a resource. There's like a lot of uh, controversy around that in, uh, in the field. I think the way that I'm going to answer the question, which might not be what you're looking for, <laughs> um, is kind of going back to the like, who cares? I know that, that people get really hung up on medical interventions with kids. First of all, they don't usually do medical interventions with kids. It's just social transition. And if you're living in a place where you're supported no matter what, to me, that feels like the most important thing. I do think like sometimes parents, like I said, can try to solve the problem in a way that isn't listening to their kids. So I do think we need to listen to our children. Like, what are they asking for? What do they need? It might not be what you think they need or what the Dateline special said that they need. You know, like every kid is different. I asked him what his recommendation was regarding transitioning kids who are experiencing gender dysphoria. Well, first of all, I think if your kid is talking to you about it, that's like amazing. And you're doing a great job as a parent, like making 
that space where your kid can talk to you. And then the thing that I would really just say is the, just to listen. Like I think like we live in a culture where we want things to be a problem so we can fix it. We don't really want to be uncomfortable and explore. And if your kid is talking to you, your job is to listen. You don't need to do anything. I think lots of times parents want to, want to do good and they like, what do I do? What do I, and it's like, just like, what's happening? Like, let's just like listen and pay attention and continue to like have a good relationship with your kid. And like, what, what are they asking for? What, who are the resources in your community? What national resources can you access to get support to talk to other parents or talk to providers? Dr. Constantinidis works with teens and adults who are transgender, who have sometimes begun hormone therapy. I asked him what his experience has been with teens as they go on hormones. I can say that the youth that I've worked with who have pursued hormonal transition have had fantastic experiences. Their lives have been transformed. They've transformed. Um, they, not that they don't still have like mental health stuff or depression or anxiety, but it is beautiful to watch somebody become on the outside, how they feel on the inside. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Thank you so much for listening.